I'm Mike and welcome to Aircrew Interview. This episode we chat with Tony Paxson on his time flying the Tornado GR1 and F2 and F3. He mainly chats about the differences between the two and also his roles on both air defence and air to ground. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Also visit us at aircrewinterview.tv for all of our other interviews and to sign up to our newsletter. Enjoy. Well, it was when I was seven years old. We were on holiday down in Cornwall, and my father said, shall we go to the Silly Isles? And we didn't fancy the boat, because both he and I suffered from travel sickness. And from St Just Airport, which is Land's End, uh, you could go in a de Havilland Dragon Rapide, and that was my first ever flight out to the Silly Isles, and I loved every second of it. I was seven years old, and we had a day in St Mary's and then flew back and that was it, I was hooked. Brilliant. So when did you join the RAF? I joined the RAF in 1968. Uh, but I was lucky enough to learn to fly while I was still at school. So could you tell us some of the aircraft you trained on? Well, I didn't fly any piston engine aeroplanes while I was in the Royal Air Force because I already had a PPL. So I went straight on to the Jet Provost Mark III and then four. Then from there down to Valley, to fly the NAT, um, for various reasons, uh, I ended up holding on the NAT as well. So, quite unusual for a non-QFI, I got nearly 250 hours flying the NAT. From the NAT we went to Chivener on the Hunter, which was quite exciting because it was the first single-seat aeroplane that he'd ever flown. And uh, of course, it, it was used as a trainer then, but it had been a frontline fighter, mm -hmm. and that was quite exciting. And that was just weaponry and tactics. Uh, finished there in summer of 1972 and then went up to Coltishall to uh, learn how to fly the Lightning. So how did you feel about going on to Lightnings? Delighted because in those days um, we were expecting new aeroplanes. We were expecting, uh, they had been expecting TSR2 and uh, that got delayed, so then there was the F-111 and that didn't happen. Phantoms were going to come, but we didn't have the aeroplanes. And so people going through fast jet training weren't getting fast jet postings. So I went through with seven or eight other guys through the NAT training, and we only got two fast jet postings, mm. one to Harriers and one to Lightning. So I consider myself very lucky to get fast jets at all. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like going from a subsonic aircraft to a supersonic aircraft? It wasn't really an issue uh, because there is no sound barrier. That's a, a myth from the, the movies of the 50s. Um, it's just an indication on a dial. And so uh, the main thing with the lightning was the, all the instrumentation, as far as speed and height was concerned, was designed for when the aeroplane was supersonic. And so you had a massive uh, altimeter error as you approached Mach 1. Uh, so much so that it was your Mach number plus two was the error. So Mach point nine add two is 1,100 foot error in the altimeter. And then as you went supersonic, the altimeter wound up to, uh, to read accurately. Oh. Doesn't sound too bad, but when you're down at 500 feet at night over the sea with the altimeter reading a negative, that can get your attention. <laughs> so what was it actually like to fly? It was a lovely airplane to fly. Um, 
it was actually a very easy aeroplane to fly. Uh, once one got used to the approach speed, which was 165 knots coming down the, 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 um, the glide path, what was difficult with the Lightning was operating it because it was a single-seater, day-night, radar. Uh, the radar controller had 14 separate controls, all to be manipulated with your left hand whilst you're trying to fly the aeroplane. It did have a fairly decent autopilot. In fact, it would do an auto ILS, would you believe, uh, for uh -huh. a 1960s aeroplane. Wouldn't auto land, but it would do quite a good approach. Yeah. So was it a capable aircraft at this time? It's uh, a much maligned aeroplane for two reasons. It's, it's got a reputation for only having half an hour's fuel, <laughs> and uh, it was underarmed, if you like, because it only had two missiles. Uh, the early marks, which I flew in Germany, the F-2A, um, had two guns. And then, they d in their wisdom, uh, the government and the MOD decided that uh, guns were no longer required. There would never be any more dogfights. So the Mark III and Mark VI were designed just to have two missiles. Mm. Of course, eventually they realised no, you are going to have to dogfight at some stage if you get into, uh, into hostilities. Mm -hmm. And the Mark VI has two Aden cannons in the front of the fuel tank, and, uh, which poses a couple of problems. Cooling, tanks with, uh, cooling guns rather, with fuel seems a bit hazardous. Um, the other thing is that the guns are a long way from the pilot's eye line, whereas the Mark IIA... Uh, if you imagine this were a lightning cockpit, the Mark I and the 2A, the guns were just here, just behind you. So the, the difference between sight line of the pilot and the actual muzzles of the gun was only about two feet or so. In the uh, Mark VI, with the guns in the belly tank, it was nearly eight feet, which, of course, adds, adds all sorts of problems to the, uh, to the sighting okay. solution. So overall, did you enjoy your time in the lightning? I did. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a great aeroplane to fly. Um, the environment was cramped and hot and the view over one's shoulder wasn't terribly good but it was a delight to fly and uh, a very capable aeroplane. We, we had a thing in Germany called Dialer Lightning which was as a number uh, that all the NATO squadrons in Germany had and if they wanted us to bounce them they'd call and tell us roughly where they were going to be and off we go. It was a very successful thing. And... Uh, we were fine until the F-15s arrived. Yeah. In fact, when they first arrived, um, if it 2v2 or 4v4, we actually did very well because they had a great aeroplane, but they didn't have much in the way of tactics. Yeah. One-on-one, uh, -on -one, forget it. Absolutely forget it. I remember the first time I got behind an F-15, I uh, was just bringing the sight to bear, and then I didn't actually see it turn. It just seemed to change shape and come back at me. <laughs> <laughs> so Pax then you moved on to the tornado how did this happen? Well the lightning was coming to the uh, end of its in-service life and I really didn't want to go and fly the F4 on air defence so I thought well how about a new aeroplane I didn't fancy camping so I didn't want to go to the Harrier and uh, the tornado was coming along so I thought well I'll give this mud moving lark a a try and fly a new aeroplane, so uh, that's how I got into that. Was it common to, to go from air to air to air to ground in those days? 
Not very. Some guys had gone from the Lightning to the Jaguar, um, and a few of us did go on to the GR1 in those early days, but no, it wasn't common. Obviously, there must have been a massive difference coming from the Lightning to the Tornado cockpit. How did you get your head around that? Well, it was rather pleasant for the cockpit. It was a quiet environment. It was temperature control was very, very good, and there was a huge amount of room. Very comfortable. The biggest thing I had to get used to was uh, the guy sitting in the back, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us about your first trip? Well, you're asking me to th- remember back over 35 <laughs> years now, but um, I think I was impressed with, uh, as I say, the quietness of the aeroplane. It was nice, crisp uh, aeroplane. The controls was fine. It was easy to fly. Very um, pleasant aeroplane. Uh, there were some maintenance issues. I'll talk a bit more about that later. Um, but no, uh, the instruction was good. All the instructors were pretty well standardised between the three nations. Mm-hmm. And uh, although I, looking in my logbook, it was quite a few trips before you actually went off with a nav for the first time. I think it was eight or nine mm-hmm. trips. So we did, with an instructor pilot, we did the basic conversion. Uh, the emergencies, of course, because you had to be able to land the aeroplane with the wings stuck back in 67, which was an interesting approach. Something like 210 knots, I think, was the approach speed. Um, formation. Um, so it was quite a lot before you actually went off with the first nav. And you had to get used to the train following radar, of course, mm-hmm. as well, which was a whole new ball game. Yeah. So could you describe some of the training sorties you actually did and like, how did you find it coming from air to air? Well, we did a lot of low level in uh, in the air defence world, chasing the mud movers. So I I was quite happy and uh, confident down at low level, comfortable down there. It didn't cause me any major problems. Um, Just getting used to the navigator, getting used to crew cooperation, um, working with him instead of against him. Single seat flying is absolutely lovely, but if you're going to go to war, you really want that guy with the extra mm-hmm. pair of eyes. In fact, I did suggest that really it should have the seat facing backwards, but uh, <laughs> that didn't go down too well. So, did you actually ever get to drop any live weapons? I did when we got to the squadron. In fact, that was quite unusual. I, th- I think with a mud mover, normally you drop maybe half a dozen a thousand pounders during a tour. Uh, Well, we dropped dozens of them because we were sort of an extension of a trials unit, if you like. And I must have dropped a dozen or 15,000 pounders in the first year flying the aeroplane on the squadron. In fact, I dropped four for a photograph, for a publicity photograph for BAE. Uh, 1,000 pounders, we used to go up to Garvey. Uh, for live thousand pounders yep mm-hmm. uh, there's an island off the north coast of scotland called garvey island and it is a proper range and the island is about the same size as the navy destroyer and so a thousand pounders are dropped on that it's had a lot of bombs on it <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine so the aircraft at this stage was it actually combat ready or was it quite new to the air force it was brand new. I was privileged to be on the first ever squadron out of all the three nations. Nine squadron was the first uh, of them all. We had not problems with serviceability, but as I understand it, the Air Force, when they bought the Phantoms, they bought a spares package. And they ended up with a warehouse full of spares they never needed. So it was a different strategy 
for the tornado. And the idea was we'd fly it, see what was often going wrong, and then buy the spares we needed. And so the, it was a bit frustrating those first year or so because quite often the aeroplanes were unserviceable because we didn't have the spares. Mm -hmm. um, but it was uh, a great aeroplane to fly. And of course, I was not only learning to fly a new aeroplane, I was learning a complete new job as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so how long before you got sent to your first squadron? Well, I think we did about four months at um, Triple T Cotsmoor and then three or four months on the south side of the airfield at Honington before moving across to uh, Nine Squadron, which were in hardened aircraft shelters, which was uh, new to us all because mm -hmm. the airplanes weren't on the line. So it was, a, I would guess, about a year from being told you're going on tornadoes, a report to North Lafferton for the aeromedical training. It was probably a year to get onto the squadron. So what was the main role of Nine Squadron? Well, we were strike attack. Um, no QRA for strike aeroplanes in the UK, of course. And the big thing was that we suddenly had an aeroplane that was all weather capable for attack at low level. And there is something quite eerie about flying around at night, hands off, with uh, the hilltops going by in the Lake District. That's a bit unnerving. Uh, and there was an area in North Scotland where we could actually go and do it IMC as well. It uh, is in cloud, low level, on autopilot. So did the terrain uh, following radar, did that work every time? It, must have had it, to. it was fail safe and it was very good. In fact, when we first got it, it was too good. It was too sensitive. And it's designed if it sees a big target, i.e. a hill or a mast or anything like that, it would fly you over it at whatever level you'd set. And the lowest level was 200 feet and the highest was 1,500 feet. But it had a flaw in as much as if it saw a large return, as in a lot of energy, it would try and fly you over it. So, for instance, if you're flying over a marshalling yard full of rails and metal coaches and locomotives, it would see that as a hill <laughs> and try and fly you over it. So, in the end, they tweaked it and ended up with a sensitivity that was only 10% of the original. Wow. That was quite sufficient to... That was, Worked very well. So going to the cockpit, could you describe it for us and how long did it take you to get used to the wing sweep? Well, the cockpit was, uh, as I said before, very, very comfortable. Uh, it had a head-up display, um, so all the flying was, all the instrument flying was done head-up and the speed, uh, attitude and everything was available head-up. There were all, all the head-down instruments as well, of course. And right in the middle of the instrument panel was a moving map display, which was absolutely magic. And there were three settings. You could either have an airways chart for flying at high level or a half million topographical map, which was just like flying wrong with a map in your hand, except it was down there and you had your accurate position. And so you just fly along and you say, oh, there's an airfield ahead. I'll go left 10 degrees to avoid that. Or there's a town over there, I'll avoid that. It was absolutely magical and completely new to me. Mm -hmm. um, the head-up display was marvellous. Um, and it was not attitude. Most aeroplanes, uh, even modern airliners today, uh, you fly on attitude. So on the approach, you 
have to fly maybe three degrees nose up or five degrees nose up depending on the configuration. But the Tornado head-up display was flight path. So if you wanted to go three degrees down, you put the aircraft symbol three degrees down and you went three degrees down. Fly level, whether it's at 150 knots or 550 knots, aircraft symbol on the horizon and the instruments in your through level. We did have one problem with it when we first got it, um, which was the radi radio altimeter. The display for the radio altimeter in the head-up display was just numbers. It was either plus or minus. And if you were descending or climbing, just the numbers just tumbled round. And it was very difficult to work out what was going on. So we went back to them and said, look, we really do need a dial here. <laughs> <laughs> so after a while, the software changed and we had a, a, a dial going round so you could tell which way it was moving and the rate at which it was moving as well, which yeah. was much more comfortable. Well, you also flew the Tornado in Germany. Could you tell us about this? Well, I was uh, lucky enough to be on the first ever squadron at Honington, and then they were setting up uh, tornadoes in Germany at Larbrook and at Bruggen. And I was posted with a colleague of mine from Nine, uh, Stu Peach, who is currently the chief of the defence staff. And we were both flight lieutenants, and we were sent out to Bruggen to set up 31. And in fact, we were called DES at the time, 31 designate, because 31... Jaguar was still going and the wing commander um, OC31 was a navigator so I had the privilege of being the first ever tornado pilot on 31 squadron and it was busy and frustrating work you know because you're DES you're not 31 and no one really wanted to know and so we were trying to get this organized and get that organized and we're in the strange situation where Stu and I would strap a tornado to our backsides and go fly around at 250 feet 420 knots to relax as you do <laughs> to get away from it all <laughs> so how did the fl uh, flying in Germany uh, differ compared to the UK well we were um, still strike attack but of course in Germany we had QRA mm -hmm. um, which was very different from air defense QRA because we weren't going to fly in peacetime. Never got airborne with a, a nuclear weapon in peacetime. And it was a 15-minute readiness, whereas uh, Gütersloh was a five-minute readiness, and uh, Bimbrook on, and Lucas, all the UK air defence, was a 10-minute readiness. Um, and to be absolutely honest, some of the guys didn't really take it that seriously. The hooter would go, and they'd, they'd run out, uh, maybe not completely dressed, if you know what I mean, uh, get in and check in and say oh I checked in in three minutes ten seconds wasn't that good I said well yeah but were you strapped in <laughs> did you have your life jacket on did you, could you have flown uh, well no probably not but we knew we weren't going to <laughs> but so, the, uh, we had target um, study to do all the time and I actually did want we go into a secure environment in a bunker and we were given a package, the navigator and the pilot sit down and uh, look at the route. And there would be, um, bearing in mind this was actually when war had kicked off, this, the QRA, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a tactical phase. And along the route there would be a little note saying something like, look left. And the reason you were looking left, because there might be a big bang and flash on the right and you didn't want to be blinded and, uh, 
and there'd be satellite photographs of uh, the target and all that sort of thing. And we, I can't remember the exact amount. I think we had to do four hours study a month on the targets. So how long did you spend over in Germany? I was at uh, Bruggen for about 20 months, just less than two years. Uh, by that time, I'd realised that mud moving wasn't really for me and I wanted to go back to air defence. Yeah. And because I was an air defence QWI and I now had quite a bit of tornado experience, uh, I don't know if they were keen to have me, but they were happy to have me. So, uh, But they, there wasn't really a slot coming up for me, so I was lucky enough to go to Cotsmore as an instructor there, which was a great time. I really enjoyed that. Just going back a bit, um, did you ever fly any flag exercises? Yep, my last, uh, during my last month on 31 at Bruggen, we were out in Nellis, uh, near Las Vegas, for Exercise Green Flag, yeah, which was uh, quite an experience as well. There's an area of desert there where no one is allowed in apart from the green flag participants, or the red flag. The difference between red flag and green flag is that green flag is heavily um, involved with electronic countermeasures. Mm-hmm. Whereas red flag, there's very little of that in comparison. Yeah. Um, and I remember once we were, uh, I was an eight ship leader there, and we were going into towards the target, an eight ship of tornadoes down at about 200 feet, doing 500 knots because we were just about to cross the flot, which is forward line owned troops. And so you want to get across there quickly and uh, timed perfectly timed to go in with us was an EF treble one Raven mm-hmm. and we were doing 500 knots at low level and this Raven came across the top of us wings back as if we were standing still I don't know what speed he was doing but perfectly timed just as we crossed that line he was there going in jamming ahead of us you must so, have been wings back at that speed he, as well oh yeah yeah right. <laughs> so just going back what was the, some of the strengths and weaknesses of the GR1 I think its main strength was that it was comfortable, so the crews were happy. It was very capable. It had a very accurate navigation system with multiple ways to fix the kit, as the Harrier guys would call it. Um, It could be fixed by the radar guy with something prominent. Um, The weapon accuracy was very, very good. Um, You could use offsets radar offsets or visual offsets to drop weapons Uh, for instance uh, a strike delivery for a nuke or even conventional thousand pounders if you didn't want to go too close to the target you could find an offset on the map which could be anything up to about 10 miles away if you knew where that was and you knew exactly in terms of northings eastings and the height difference where the target was you could put that into the computer, um, which people would laugh at nowadays, the capability of this computer, 64 bits. <laughs> uh, anyway, you could put the, the offset in, mark that either visually or on the radar, and the computer would work out when to pull up, and you could pull up the airplane. I think we started at 500 knots, and you just follow the directions in the head-up display and the weapon would release automatically and then you could turn and go away. Particularly if it's a nuke, you want to get out of the way very, very quickly. <laughs> um, and we were getting accuracies in terms of 50, 60 feet, that sort of delivery, which is quite remarkable because if you think of the wind, the computer only knows the wind when you 
either flying low or when re you release the weapon. Yeah. Of course, it's going to go up into different winds. So that was very impressive. Mm -hmm. And the TF, of course, the terrain following, that was impressive as well. It was a very similar, it may have been the same system as was in the F-1. Okay. Um, uh, I know the ground mapping radar was the same, but it wasn't quite as... Quite as good as the you know, as the F trouble one. The Americans weren't going to let us have the no. standard of kit they had. But uh, what was it like working with the Germans and Italians? Well, it was fantastic. Actually, it was very good. There was a great social life. Um, we were training RAF pilots and navigators, pilots and navigators for the Italian Air Force, and pilots and navigators for the German Air Force and German Navy. So there are actually four forces involved, although the three nations. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, there hadn't been very many navigators, if any, in the Italian Air Force or the German Air Force. And so quite a few of the NAVs were actually pilots who had been remustered, which they weren't very happy about. <laughs> um, but I was an instructor on A Squadron, which was uh, commanded by a German major, um, a mix of students and pilots. But I remember two students in particular... Um, one was a, a Italian pilot called Sergio, and it was his first tour. He'd just come out of training. And they'd both been trained in the States. And we were flying in formation one day. They'd been, come from Arizona and come onto the tornado. Hadn't they, I don't think they'd even been back to Italy. They'd just come straight across. And we, we used to do formation approaches, one speaking unit, so very close formation. Um, we were going downwind for a GCA, ground controlled approach, which is like an ILS, but you're talked down by the controller. Anyway, we're number two sitting on the wing of this guy. I'm in the back and Sergio, of course, is in the front. And this little Italian voice says, Eh, hey, sir. Uh, yes, Sergio. He said, there is a cloud, Ed. I said, yes, Sergio. He said, uh, sir, we are going to go into the cloud. I said, yes, Sergio, that's why we're in formation. <gasps> okay. <laughs> <laughs> because coming from Arizona, I had seen very little poor weather. Yeah, but, exactly. uh, he was very good, actually, a very, very good guy. And the German nav was quite funny as well. They'd trained in the States, but they had a, a Boeing 737 over there with tornado rear cockpits in. I don't know how many four or five down the back and so he, he was actually very good at using the nav system very good at it and we were going high low one day up to Scotland and we were crossing the Great Glen it was a glorious day we were about 24,000 feet and you could see the whole of the Great Glen right down from Lochlinny all the way up to uh, Inverness and it was absolutely lovely anyway I said to him I can't remember his name I said uh, so where are we and I'm watching in the mirrors and he goes to the TV tab display and he says, oh, we are 23 miles from Point Charlie. I said, well, I know that, but where are we? Look out, get your chart out, look out at uh, what you can see on the ground and tell me, where are we? So I look in the mirror and you... And you go back to the TV tabulator. We are 19 miles from Point Charlie. I said, no, no. Look at the ground. Look at the chart. Match the two. Where are we? I mean, we're crossing the Great Glen. It's a pretty easy question to answer. So, same thing again. Head right, head left. Back to the chart. Back to the TV tab. 
Yeah, 14 miles from Point Park. <laughs> so in the end, I said, right, turn the TV tabs off. His eyes go, what? Turn them off. And now he's bereft. What am I going to do? I said, right, don't worry, you haven't failed this trip. But I'm going to show you how to navigate. I rolled it on its back and flew him around Scotland for 45 minutes at low level on a map and a, a thumb. And he was absolutely amazed. How did you do that? Well, how do you think we used to do it before we had the tornado? You know, it wasn't his fault. It was just the way that he'd been trained. But so, Pax, overall, did you enjoy your time on the GR1? I did. It was a different experience. Um, it broadened my experience, obviously, and it got me used to flying with a, with a navigator. It also gave me the chance to do some more training because Triple TE was the only place in the Air Force where you could train other pilots without being a QFI qualified weapons instructor because the Italians and the Germans had this IP qualification instructor pilot uh, I did a 10-day course called competent to instruct um, and I was able to instruct other pilots on how to fly the tornado but it was a qualification that I lost as soon as I left because uh, you had to be a QFI to do any pilot training otherwise in the Air Force. But no, I did thoroughly enjoy it, but uh, I was happy to get back to air defence. There's a, a fundamental difference between mud moving and air defence. Strike attack, the target is always on the ground. It's generally stationary, and it, it's there when you get was three hours before you took off when you started the planning. <laughs> the other thing is every, nearly everything in uh, strike attack happens behind you. <laughs> you drop a weapon and it goes off behind you. Or you throw loft, you disappear and it goes off behind you. Nearly everything in air defence is out the front. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing is you get scrambled. That's all you know. Scramble, vector this heading, climb to this level. You don't know what you've got to do. You might have to go high, you might have to go low, it might be fast, it might be slow. You might have to kill it, identify it, shadow it, or escort it. It might be something in, in distress. You know. So the, the variety in air defence is what appealed to me. I did enjoy the mud moving, but uh, it was very limited. The other thing is, you, in bad weather... Uh, particularly at low level, the mud movers don't go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas as long as the weather's good enough to land, air defenders will always go and get air exactly. <laughs> So you then went back to air defence. How did this happen? Well, I was uh, a qualified weapons instructor on the Lightning when I left the Lightning Force. So I had uh, a qualification which was um, valuable to the air defence world. And by this time, I had over a thousand hours experience on the airframe. So with the F2, then F3 coming in, I think it was uh, useful for me to go back and apply both sets of experience to the air defence world. So how much training do you have to have going on the F2? Well, actually, training onto the flying the airplane was very quick. Obviously, I had plenty of time on it. Um, getting used to the weapon system and all my air defence flying have been single seat of course apart from when I was instructing in the T-Bird so again I had to get used to doing it rather differently with the navigator having complete control of the radar but uh, it didn't take too long uh, at the time we didn't have a Tornado F3 simulator at Coningsby 
we did have a, a trainer for the radar, which was called the Tate, the Tornado Air Intercept Trainer. And uh, we used that. We had a, um, a procedures trainer for emergencies. And all the rest was done on the airplane. We had uh, a few F2s. I think there were less than 20 were built, I think, the F2s. They rapidly moved on to the F3. So I flew the F2 a few times whilst I was on the OCU, uh, which I've been on before, funnily enough, twice. 229 OCU was where I flew Hunters at Chivener, and 65 Squadron, which was the reserve plate, had been the squadron I flew at Coltishall on 226 OCU on the Lightning. So I've been on both outfits before. Um, we did quite a varied, a lot of training, actually. We learned to fly the aeroplane, um, learned to use the radar, and then went out to Deci Mamano uh, for the ACMI range out there, which is the Air Combat Maneuvering Instrumentation range, and did DACT with F-16s and uh, Jaguars and Phantoms whilst we were on the course. That was quite uh, interesting. And then back to Coningsby, and we actually did air-to-air uh, um, -air gunnery on the course as well. And the gun was very good, very accurate, uh, the system was very good and I think everyone qualified in a uh, matter of two or three sorties so that was very good and there was a strange anomaly whilst I was there because I'd been an instrument rating examiner on the Tornado GR1 and it's an anomaly of the system where one is an examiner on a type not a mark and so whilst I was still a student on the course, I was actually doing instrument rating exams on other students to help them out because it was a new aeroplane and they did, the staff at uh, the OCU didn't have many uh, instrument rating examiners. So that was quite unusual for a student to do that. Yeah. Famously, it had the blue circle radar. Was this just the F2? Yes, and in fact, um, by the time we got there, there were only three or four aeroplanes with uh, with no radar in so it wasn't too much of a, of a hindrance for us uh, but I know when they first setting up the OCU and when the guys went through for 29 squadron which was the first F, uh, ADV squadron they did have trouble with uh, the concrete ballast yeah. <laughs> so coming from the GR1 what the the first initial thoughts of the what were the differences basically well the airplane was very similar um, the flying controls and the systems were all almost identical. It was a much longer nose on the aeroplane uh, for two main reason was to accommodate four sky flash uh, on the belly of the aeroplane and the radar, the radome was longer as well. So the whole aeroplane I think was something like 50 inches longer, nearly five feet longer. Um, and that gave the opportunity to put an extra fuel tank in, which was called the O-tank just behind the navigator so it had quite a good endurance even clean and we flew the airplane clean for a long time yeah was that a lot more agile than the gr1 uh, i don't think it was actually um it had a a system called spills now i honestly don't remember if the airplane had it originally or it came later during the time i was flying it but spills was spin an instant limiting system which automatically um, was supposed to stop you spinning or stalling the aeroplane. But being a fly-by-wire aeroplane, it was easy to apply that in the software. 
But every now and then, you did get the idea at the limits of the envelope that you maybe weren't actually flying the aeroplane that was being flown for you, which was a bit strange. <laughs> so what were your first uh, combat uh, squadron? Well, I was on number five squadron at uh, Coningsby, which was a squadron I'd been on before as a lightning squadron at Bimbrook. And in fact, the two squadrons were side by side for a while. Bimbrook, five squadron at Bimbrook with the lightnings and five squadron designate, I suppose, at Coningsby um, were together for about five, six months, I think. Uh, and then eventually when we were combat ready, the, uh, the five squadron lightning disbanded and we were it. So can you describe some of the training sorties you conducted on the F-3 Well, mostly once we were on the squadron, um, I've already told you about the OCU. Once you were on the squadron, it was practice intercepts, um, caps, combat air patrols, and uh, high level, low level, just the whole gamut. As I said before, the fundamental difference between air defence and mud moving was you had to be able to cope with anything from sea level to 70,000 feet, 100 knots to Mach 3, and uh, so constantly training for that sort of thing. So obviously you flew the Lightning on 5. What was, was that a big difference coming to the Tornado? Could you see the capabilities were a lot better? The, the radar was much more capable, of course. It had track well scan, uh, much greater range. It had a look-down capability. And the aeroplane, when we were flying it initially, had six missiles as well, four sky flash and two sidewinders on the inboard of the inboard, inboard pylons. The F3 didn't have the outboard pylons, it only had the, the inboard pylons. Um, so yes, it was more capable from terms of radar and the weapons. The semi-active sky flash could be fired at very long range, um, long before you got to what they call the merge, when you actually get to see the targets visually. However, you can't really take a bomber and turn it into a fighter. The Tornado ADV was never a, an air superiority fighter. It was a bomber killer, really. Um, great air display aeroplane, superb power down at low level, um, but take it anywhere above 15 or 20,000 feet and the lightning would see it off easily, <laughs> no trouble at all. So how did it fare in DACT against the likes of F-16s or F-18s? Well, it had to be tactics, really. Um, you certainly couldn't hold your own against an F-15 or an F-16 in close combat. It just wasn't that sort of aeroplane. Uh, it did turn well with the wings forward um, and f full reheat, but that was a huge penalty in, in fuel, whereas the Lightning, you could fight, fly, fight it quite well in cold power, um, certainly up to 20,000 feet or so, only using the reheat when you needed it. But uh, as soon as you got above about 10,000 feet in the tornado, you needed reheat all the time. So did you ever intercept any bears? Uh, only on the lightning. I intercepted a bear on the lightning. Um, on QRA on the tornado, the only Russian I intercepted was a Koot, which is a, a transport aeroplane, which the Russians... It's a four-inch turboprop aeroplane, which I think the Russians were using for reconnaissance and surveillance over, a, I think it was a naval exercise in the North Sea. However, I was lucky enough to intercept some MiG-29s when they came to Farnborough uh, in 1988. They were the first Russian fighters to come to the UK since the Second World War. And it was deemed appropriate that we should go and meet them somewhere over 
the English Channel and escort them into Farnborough, which was a great idea. And uh, we were clean, had no tanks, no weapons on the aeroplane, because we didn't want to frighten them. But we did have a tanker, there were two of us. We came off the tanker and uh, went off to intercept these uh, Russian MiGs. Now, as I said earlier, the Tornado was not a high-level aeroplane. And these MiGs were at 43,000 feet. So uh, in cold power, because it was designed as an air superiority fighter. So we got vectored onto them, came round the back, intercepted them, but we were in almost full reheat to stay up there with them at 43,000 feet. And luckily they were on a different frequency because the Russians didn't have UHF, they only had VHF. So we asked London military to invent an air traffic reason to get them down, which they did. They got them down to about 28,000 feet and then we were happy there. <laughs> uh, lucky enough to get promoted while I was still on five squadron. Uh, so I spent five or six months overborne as a squadron leader on five and then went up to Leeming to set up my fourth tornado squadron from scratch. Uh, Eleven squadron were already up and running at Leeming and we arrived uh, 23 squadron uh, as the second squadron, the third came along later which was 25 so there were three squadrons actually at Leeming in the end. So what's the role it actually entails? Well as the A flight commander, OCA, I was responsible for um, most of the pilots on the squadron. Uh, OCB flight was responsible for most of the navs um, not entirely, but that was the tender, because OCB was a navigator. There was a wing commander boss was a pilot. I, as OCA, was um, a pilot, and OCB was a navigator. We also had uh, a weapons leader, who was a squadron leader, and a nav leader, who uh, was a squadron leader nav. So there were five execs on the squadron. Um, and on top of that, we had a squadron leader uh, engineering officer. So did you ever fly on any large exercises with the F-3? Quite a few um, Elder Forest, uh, Elder Joust, which were big air defence exercises. Also, one of our jobs since the demise of uh, the fixed-wing carriers um, was to uh, defend the fleet at sea. And so we got involved in quite a few um, maritime exercises as well, where we would um, caps combat air patrols overhead or near the fleet um, to protect them from any airborne attack. And you also flew in the Gulf, could you tell us about this? Well, I did fly in the Gulf, I didn't actually fly in the shooting war. Um, what happened when Saddam Hussein invaded Iraq, I was actually at a, an air display down in Cornwall at St Morgan and in the middle of the afternoon it was a Wednesday, if I remember rightly. All of a sudden, things started to, to move, and uh, they stopped the display for a while, and the Victor tanker that was there was dragged out of the static display, and off he went and disappeared. Well, what's going on here? And, of course, there were no mobile phones then. So someone asked me to ring the squadron, and they said, ah, right, well, Iraq have invaded Kuwait, and it looks like... Um, we're going to have to go out and defend Saudi. Well, 11 Squadron were already on uh, 
APC out in Akrotiri, and uh, they went straight out to Dahran in Saudi Arabia as the initial people. When I got back to Leeming, we were told that we'd be working up for what became Operation Granby, uh, or Desert Shield, before the shooting started. After the shooting, it was Desert Storm. So that was in the August, and we'd been told, we'd been asking for some time for chaff and flares, and we'd been told there was a new improved radar in the pipeline. But we'd been told it was a long way off. So we were, next day, I remember we were in an HS-125 being flown from Leeming, two crews, down to uh, Dunsfold, which everyone will know now from Top Gear fame. But uh, then it was uh, British Aerospace Airfield where they used to build the Harriers. Anyway, we landed at Dunsfold in a taxi taken down to Shoreham, which is near Brighton, to a big building, uh, walked inside, and there was a Tornado F3 simulator in there. Said, What's this? He said, oh, well, it's got the new radar in it. You've come down to train on the new radar that you're going to have in the Gulf. What new radar? So anyway, the two crews were trained up um, over a three or four day period on this new radar, which was quite different, much more capable. Um, don't ask me the specifics, but I think the track well scan and the look down was a lot better from what I remember. And also the ECM um, resilience was much better than the one we had. So I asked, well, what, why have you got this radar in this simulator down here? He said, oh, well, it's actually it's for the Saudis. They haven't got a building to put the simulator in yet. It was supposed to go out last month. We're just lucky it's still here. So the Saudis were going to get a more up-to-date radar than we had on the front line in the UK. Anyway, having trained with it, we went back to Leeming and... Then we found that we'd been asking for chaff and flares on the aeroplane and been told, no, 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 lead-in time of two years, you can't have them yet, there's not enough money, you know, can't possibly have that. Well, they were on the aeroplane in just over 14 days and we were training with them. And at the back end of August, I think it was 28th, 29th of August, we went out to Dahran to relieve 11th Squadron and the people out there. It was... I was a flight commander on 23 at the time, as I said, but the squadron that went to Dahran initially was 11 Desert Eagles, commanded by OC-11, and it was a flight of crews from 11 Squadron, a flight of crews from 23, and a flight of crews from 25 Squadron who went out there. But we were known as 11 Squadron Dahran at the time. And we were flying combat air patrols up on the Iraqi border, we were out there until just before Christmas, um, obviously saw no action, but uh, we did have some interesting moments. We were on cap one day and uh, my navigator had seen a target. And it was night time actually, it wasn't day. And he called it to the, um, the AWACS and said, we've got a target crossing the, the, uh, the border. And this is all on secure radio. And the controller in the AWAC said, no, you haven't. And uh, the navigator was quite insistent. He said, we have. He said, no, you haven't. Oh, OK. So we surmised it was special forces helicopters or something like that crossing the border. But uh, we, most of those sorties were four, four and a half hours uh, with 
tanker support from VC-10s at Bahrain, um, fully armed all the time. And when we weren't on cap, we were doing training, but again, fully armed with live weapons. And there were only two outfits who would train with us. Um, the US Marines with their F-18s, they were quite happy to train with us. The US Air Force didn't want to know because we had live weapons and our own British Jaguars and Tornadoes. So uh, it was a very interesting time, did a lot of flying um, then. Went back just before Christmas, as I say, I think we were replaced by 43, um, who were there when it all kicked off in January. Uh, but as corollary to this, uh, the end story, if you like, all the deep maintenance was done in UK. So the airplanes had to be rotated from UK through Dharan as the, the months went by. And I led a four-ship of tornadoes out to Dharan to, re, to swap over and bring some back for maintenance on the day that the war ended. And the ceasefire was 0500 on the 28th of February, which was exactly the moment that we took off from Leeming. And that was the longest flight I did in a tornado, over nine hours direct Leeming to Dharan. Uh, we landed there. We gave the aeroplanes to the squadron, had a night's sleep, and then went back to U to UK. But because the engineering fraternity weren't comfortable about the wear that the engines had had, not just because of the lot of flying they'd been doing, but also the, the sand in the desert and what was going on, they were, weren't confident about the nine-hour flight back. So we staged through Dechi Mamanu, which was about five hours, I think, from Dharan to Dechi. And we landed there, and we were fated by everyone on the ground. Oh, you've just come from Dharan, the war's over, let me have a beer, and oh, we've got a barbecue organised for you. Because they thought we'd been out there for the war. They didn't realise we'd gone out the day before. So we didn't, uh, didn't enlighten them. We just enjoyed their hospitality, and the next day flew back to UK. <laughs> So did you enjoy going back to air-to-air? -air? Yes, I did. I enjoyed going back to the air defence environment very much. As I said earlier on, the challenges are different. You don't know what's going to happen when you go. Um, I have to say, for its role, the GR1 was a much more capable aeroplane than the F3. Um, I would much rather have had something like an F15 or an F14 for the air defence of the UK. But we made the best of what we had, and I think we did a pretty good job. Having said that, it's notable that none of the F3s saw any action out in the Gulf. <laughs> so overall, did you enjoy your time on the F3? I did, yeah, I did. I got used to the two-seat environment, realised that it was always good to have uh, someone else helping you to operate the aeroplane. Um, it was a good time. So, Pat, what happened after you left the RAF? Well, bad timing. I left in June... June of 1991, which of course was just after the first Gulf War. And British Airways had just bought Dan Air for a pound, and Air Europe had just gone bust. So there was a, a glut of very well qualified pilots out there, guys with ratings on 737s and Airbus 320s. I did have a, an ATPL license, but my type was a little uh, piston twin. <coughs> so getting a job was never really going to happen at that stage. So I ended up going out into Africa and I flew light twins in Africa for just on two years, which was great fun. 
a wonderful experience. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, from Nairobi, we used to fly two scheduled services a day into the Maasai Mara. We did flying doctor work, where we did aid work and charter work as well. So it was great fun. I did a lot of flying and some wonderful scenery, uh, lots of safaris and uh, nights spent in the bush. It was great fun. What other airlines did you fly for? Well, when I came back from Africa, uh, things were starting to pick up, but it still wasn't um, easy to get a job. So I did take the first one I was offered, which was Boeing 727s, flying cargo for hunting cargo airlines. And the 7-2 was a lovely aeroplane. I really thoroughly enjoyed that. The aeroplanes were on the Irish register, funnily enough, because although hunting was a, a British airline, and there were already 727s on the British register with uh, Dan Air, or had been with Dan Air, they had never had a cargo aeroplane. And the CAA said, well, if you want to put a... 727 with a cargo door on the register, you're going to have to go through the whole certification process. So Hunting thought, this is going to be silly. So they set up Hunting Cargo Airlines Ireland, and uh, they had Electras and 727s. We had 10 727s. Um, we worked for TNT and DHL and flew all over Europe. Uh, the airline was sold to the South Africans and eventually became air contractors. But the 727 was coming to the end of its life because of noise. The aeroplane was still very capable, but the regulations in Europe meant it could no longer fly mm -hmm. because of the noise made by uh, the jet engines. Mm -hmm. And DHL had just bought 42 757s from British Airways. Uh, half of them went on the Belgian register and the other half went on to the British Register, and the airline was based at East Midlands Airport. And initially, we were seconded from air contractors to DHL, and then given the opportunity to leave one airline and join the other. And I went straight into DHL 757s as a captain, and saw out the rest of my career there. So how long did you fly civil aircraft for? Well, I spent 23 years in the Air Force, and I spent 23 years flying 7.2s and 7.5s. And I'm hoping to spend 23 years flying general aviation airplanes as well. So, Pax, do you have any hobbies? Well, flying still. We have a share in a light airplane, and Elena enjoys flying. She started her training and did uh, eight solos. So we share the flying, and that's good fun. Uh, I'm into photography, and I've taken up gardening in a more um, proactive way than I used to. I used to just be the labourer. Elena would direct and I would dig, rake or whatever, but I've actually got a little rose garden now which I'm uh, trying to get to grips with. Very nice. So what's your favourite aircraft? That is a very tricky question. I've been lucky enough to fly lots of different types. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed flying the Tiger Moth. That was good fun. And I thoroughly enjoyed the Nat when I was in training for the Air Force. Uh, from civilian aeroplanes, uh, the 727 was great fun as well. So it would have to be a choice between either the Tiger Moth or Chipmunk as a light aeroplane, the Nat uh, as a fast jet, if you like, and the 727. Nice. But making a choice is a bit difficult. <laughs> is the one you wish you could have flown? 
I would very much like to have flown the F-15 or the F-18. That would have been great. And I did try to organise uh, a trip in the front seat of a two-seat Spitfire, but unfortunately that came to nothing. Mm. Uh, Elena did offer to buy me a backseat ride, but I, if I'm going to fly it, I want to fly it. So anyway, <laughs> of course. There we go. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Uh, no, and thankfully people don't seem to get sick of me talking about it. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.